Welcome to my den and to this phenomenally special episode of the Native Digital Native Analog Show. This episode is deeply personal for me, y'all, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. But first, I want you to dive inside the head of our guest, James Fellows, for just a moment. So I want you to go back to high school and imagine that you are a 15 or 16-year-old Growing up in the UK, you come from a very wealthy, privileged family, and you're sent to one of the most prestigious boarding schools in all of the UK. You're expected to be just this brilliant leader, world changer. On your right and on your left, there in high school, are Boris Johnson and David Cameron who are in the same clubs, running around the same circles, eating the same lunch as you, who of course go on to be two prime ministers in the UK. And your trajectory is bright, your future is bright. You graduate and you start climbing the corporate ladder. Everything is going swimmingly. You've got two young children with a third on the way, beautiful babies. You are climbing the corporate ladder at Guinness. You are just killing it. You are making great money. You're getting to live and travel. And suddenly, one day, you wake up and you don't even have the energy to get a can of beans out of the cabinet. And from there, your life begins to unravel until you're at your very lowest, financially, mentally, physically, emotionally, well, that's exactly what happened to our guest today. James Fellows is an absolutely amazing human with an amazing story. And essentially what has happened in his life, which you'll hear from his perspective in just a few minutes, is he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder or bipolar reorder, as he's now come to call it. And the life that he will share with you and the story that has led him to where he is now is just absolutely mind-boggling. James has come out of the unraveling. He has re-raveled his, his life together. And now he's the co-founder of Bridge of Hope Careers, which has now placed over 75,000 people with both visible and invisible disabilities into meaningful careers. But here's the reason I said this episode is deeply, deeply personal for me. My sister, Sam, she's 23, just a few weeks ago was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And it has been a deeply emotional time for my family, but we are so grateful she has a diagnosis because it, it explains so much of her life. And I took a, a, a jump here and actually invited her on the show five minutes before we started recording to talk to James, someone who's on the other side of this and who has been through the consequences, the crises, and the emotional and mental struggle from this. So today, you get to hear a deeply vulnerable and personal conversation from Sam, a 23-year-old, experiencing this at the beginning of her journey, and James, who has gone through this and is decades into this journey. I hope that, like me, you might leave this episode deeply affected and, and profoundly impacted 
but also that it will open your mind like it has like it has for mine to a level of empathy that we didn't think was possible for people who may be experiencing mental conditions like this and that we'll also take a moment to pause and reflect on what we could learn from people whose brains and whose minds work differently from ours. I won't delay us further. I can't wait for you to hear this special conversation. So without further ado, hang on to your seats or your time machines if you're cool like that and join me in my living room with the amazing James Fellows and my sister, Sam. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a Native Digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one you pay to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today. You ready for this? Great. Awesome. Okay. James, I literally cannot tell you how excited and like how much I've been looking forward to this conversation. And I know I just shared with you that, you know, right, literally a week ago, um, pretty much. I mean, Sam, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was about a week ago. About a week and a half. That we discovered that Sam has a bipolar condition. I love how you rephrase it as bipolar reorder instead of disorder. And we'll, we'll get into that. But um, this is a, this has been like a super, super vulnerable, interesting week for both of us um, since we lived together and like all the things that we've been um, experiencing this week. So I, I cannot tell you how timely this conversation is and how much I'm looking forward to this. So um, why don't we start off with that big, hairy question of <laughs> um, what's something that uh, people don't know about you, James, something that uh, maybe you've never shared? Okay, well, first of all, Hannah, thanks so much for having me on your podcast. Sam, great to have you on there as well. Uh, looking forward to our chat a little, in a little while. Um, yeah, um, I was sort of racking my brains trying to think of something that was sort of vaguely interesting uh, that most people hadn't heard of. So I'll... Um, and then it sort of struck me that, um, you know, I, I was driving along in my car today, coming back from staying with family for Easter, um, and I was looking at the GPS. Um, and I look at GPS slightly different to most people, probably. Um, I do I do look at the road, which is, you know, quite important, and I do see how many miles it is till I turn left or whatever, et cetera, et cetera. But the other thing I scan whenever I'm doing my GPS is I scan for blue. Um, and that's either a wiggle of blue or a blob of blue. Um, and a wiggle of blue is called a river, and a blob of blue is called a lake. And you're probably going, okay, where's he going with this? Uh, well, the reason I do that is whenever I have any opportunity possible uh, and I see a nice big wiggle of blue, I will slow down, have a quick look, check out a river, and then I'll jump in it. Um, and I do this all year round. Um, it's, my, it's my thing. I uh, can't go more than three days, probably three or four days, without having a swim in a river or a lake. It uh, doesn't matter whether it's January or July, preferably January, uh, preferably uh, about two degrees uh, above or below freezing. Um, and it is, you know, I find it just something, it's, uh, it literally draws me in. I, you know, Obviously, if I've got meetings to go to or other stuff, I can't do anything about it. But if I have time, I will stop the car and I'll 
get out and I'll find somewhere. And it's usually illegal. You're not allowed to swim wherever it is. So, of course, I'm like, well, just jump in and then ask for forgiveness. Um, and I get off and jump out, get out and um, jump into that particular river. Um, and I find um, rivers are my kind of happy place. It's taken me a while to realize that rivers, lakes, but also the sea, but particularly rivers. Um, and, um, you know, when I'm when I'm in a river, um, I'm in nature. I'm not looking at nature. You know, when you walk along a river, it's great. You see some beautiful birds and scenery, et cetera, et cetera. But they all disappear as soon as you come around. Uh, when you're in the river, they don't disappear because they just think you're a seal or an otter or a walrus, probably in my case. Um, and so they just think you're one of them. And so you're so close. I get so close to kingfishers, ducks, geese, everything. I'm with them all the time. And, um, and I find it just unbelievable. Um, you touched on bipolar, so we'll come back to that in a moment. But I have bipolar reorder rather than dis disorder, I like to think of it. Um, but, you know, um, whilst I do take meds, and I have had therapy by far the best um, medicine of the lot has been jumping in a river. Uh, anyway, so I haven't told anybody else that about the idea with my GPS, but quite a few of my friends know that I spend my entire life looking for rivers to jump in and think I'm totally bonkers. Wait, Sam, can you relate to this at all? In a way, I can relate. I won't say that I've, you know, every time I pull up a GPS that I'm specifically looking for blobs of blue or bits of blue or whatever term you use for that. But um, I, looking back, it's really funny you say that because I've actually have just on a whim just jumped into a freezing cold lake and it felt just so exhilarating and it just felt so refreshing. Um, so actually, now that you mentioned that, it kind of makes me want to look for those um, <laughs> blobs of blue on my GPS yeah. next time I pulled up. It's it is fantastic. It's and it, you know there's a lot of science around um, open water swimming, cold water swimming, um, and it is phenomenal. It's good for your body, but it's phenomenal for your head. Um, and when you get out of water, so particularly this, if it's really cold, this guy, you know, and James, it's actually really funny. I'm now that you've got me thinking about this. Um, several weeks ago, I went to Minnesota for the first time. It's for a friend's okay. wedding, and. It was freezing. I've never, ever seen that much snow in my life before. I mean, we live in North Carolina. We get some snow, but it's not anything exorbitant um, amounts of snow like it was in Minnesota. And I did not prepare for the weather. <laughs> Hannah laughed at me because I actually took just some sandals and slippers up and then like open-toed um, heels for the wedding and just like walked around and I was like tiptoeing over the snow. And yeah. um, at one point, it was really funny because I was staying at this hotel and there's this, you know, pool in the hotel and... Um, this hot tub and me and my friend um, went down there to just take a swim after the wedding and we were hanging out and right outside it was like it was it was a blizzard I mean it felt like I was in frozen like I felt like I was Elsa in frozen and I actually <laughs> hopped I was in the hot tub and I hopped out and I went outside and I just ran around the building barefoot in my bikini I just <laughs> ran around outside in the how, snow how great did you lay down just made a Oh my gosh, it was amazing. It was yeah. it was absolutely amazing. It makes me want to do that again. I mean, I just made a snow <laughs> angel. I just laid down in the snow. I put it all over my face, put it everywhere, and then I ran back inside and hopped in the in the hot tub again and it felt amazing. <laughs> so, okay, so what I'm hearing you guys say is <laughs> just like the founding fathers, which James, I did not know that until you wrote about it, that yeah. many yeah. of the founding fathers were diagnosed, you know, years later Mo retroactively yeah. as um as bipolar. 
And you said something like, what crazy human or what human would be crazy or not in their right mind to move across <laughs> to a wasteland? And I was just thinking, I wouldn't because I don't know what that's like. But yeah, Sam would. I have two... two um, <laughs> that's hilarious. I mean, one time I just found myself randomly in Utah and I just jumped into the salt. This keeps coming back to water. That's kind of crazy. I just yeah. hopped into the salt lake, swam for like three or four miles effortlessly. It was amazing. I exfoliated my skin in the salt. It was great. <laughs> so, so James, this, this whole wild swimming thing, like when did you discover that that was helpful for your yeah. body and your brain? Like what drew you to it? Um, so I was, I was, um, back, um, you know, we're probably going to come back to the, the, the unraveling bit, but you know, back, back in the UK, having had some fairly challenging times. Um, and I was trying to kind of rebuild my career and I was spending two, two or three days in London, um, staying in North London. And I stayed near a place called Hampstead Pond, Hampstead Park, which is a huge park in, in London. And, and they have these ponds there, um, that people swim in. And I kind of was wandering past one day and I'm like, Oh, that's pretty random people swimming in a pond. Um, and so anyway, I thought that looks quite fun. So I, because I've always loved swimming. I've always been totally crap at it, to be honest, but I've always loved it. Uh, particularly if it was sort of outdoors and whatever. So I started and I really enjoyed it. Um, and I used to go and do it sort of six in the morning. Uh, and there was a whole bunch of other people doing it. And then we sort of got to September, end of September. So I said to the guys, okay, so when does the season stop? And they said, uh, what do you mean? I said, well, when do they close the ponds? Because obviously we're not going to be able to do this much longer. And they said, oh, they don't. It just goes the whole way through the, the winter. And I'm like, I know I look stupid, but um, I'm not that stupid. So when does the season stop? And they all turned to me and went, it doesn't. <laughs> so it became clear that obviously, and I said, well, how many people actually do this? They said, oh, it's kind of just the hardcore that do it. Anyway, so I said, well, all right, well, I'm in. So I just carried on going there two or three days a week um, and, you know, got to November, got to December, you know, it was getting colder and colder. Uh, and there's a rule, you can't have wetsuits. It's, you know, you'd be, you'd be uh, thrown off the premises if you had a wetsuit. So uh, it's just swimming trunks and you, you might be allowed a pair of gloves if it's, you know, there's some ice there. And I, so I did my first winter um, and I got through um, and it was damn cold, but your body um, builds up conditioning to it um, if you're used to it. So, I mean, you know, if you, a rash, you know somebody from Scandinavia or Russia or Eastern Europe, you know, they're able to get into a lot really cold temperatures because they're used to it. Um, and so I kind of did one winter and I loved it. And then, um, then kind of moved more back to where I live now, kind of in sort of Cambridge area. And there's quite a few. So I was like, well, I'll go and find some other rivers there, found some other rivers here. And then, then I basically became obsessed about it um, to the point where three years ago, just before COVID, I think I did 94 different rivers or lakes in one year. Um, and then COVID came along and kind of stopped me getting to a hundred. <laughs> um, but, um, so yeah, it, I, I found it incredibly helpful, um, for my mental health condition, but you know, I, you, you don't have to have bipolar to really enjoy it. Um, they did an art, they did a, a documentary on these ponds, um, on the BBC and they interviewed all these people and they'd all had some form of trauma or challenge in their lives. And they said, well, what's been the biggest healer for that? And every single one said the pond, the water. Not the medicine, not the therapy, not anything else. Everyone, it didn't matter whether they'd had cancer, whether they had a drug addiction, whether they'd had a uh, death in the family. You know, it was across the board. All, all of them turned around and said it was the water that was the healer. Um, so anyway, there's something to it. <laughs> wow. Well, clearly there's something to it. And I, I feel like this is one of the first times, except for, you know, 
I don't know what his name is, the Iceman, or he, that's his, you know, name he goes by, (laughs) (laughs) who, you know, swears by cold therapy and all these things, and of course, oh, is that his name? Yeah, Yeah, so, you know, everyone all over YouTube is, you know, oh my gosh, ice therapy is the thing, but I, I don't know that I've met someone who, you know, leverages water and cold and all of that as, as a form of therapy or better than the therapy it sounds like yeah, better, um, much which better is than so therapy. interesting and okay so absolutely i think we both probably need to hear that so okay take us back then james you called it the unraveling but you have such an interesting sort of origin story is sort of how i look about at it and it, it had many um ups and downs and oh gosh i feel like you know me and sam personally right now we're we feel like we're in one of those downs i i actually had to last week I canceled pretty much every meeting on my calendar. I just felt, you know, this, this is so heavy of a topic to deal with when there's like people in your life who are experiencing this and you've been through it to like, it seems like the hundredth extreme based on Mm. what, you know, I've heard from you. So take us, take us back, whatever you want to share, like take us back to when that unraveling occurred. Well, I think it's important to give you the context of uh, the background, I suppose, before. So um, because, you know, I probably was one of the luckiest people on the planet for the first 40 odd years of my life. Um, and so I was born white male and exceptionally privileged. Um, you know, and so age 13, I was sent away to the world's most famous boarding school. Um, and I was in the same class as a boy called Cameron, who went on to run the UK. Um, and I was two years below a buffoon called Boris, who went on to run the UK into the ground. Uh, So you kind of get the level of (laughs) extreme privilege that I had there. So, you know, I was surrounded by former prime, you know, future prime ministers, etc, etc. And so um, from there, I went on to University of Edinburgh, uh, which was a great school there. And then I went into the drinks industry. um, And I spent two decades in the drinks industry. And, you know, it was great. And I was climbing the corporate ladder fairly quickly. And by 2003, we got moved to the US, which is great. We had three small kids under the age of four at the time. And then come 2008, you know, life was about as good as you could get. So we were living in Connecticut. We had a big mansion. I was a very senior executive for the biggest drinks company in the world. I was happily married. And I had three wonderful kids um, and a large swimming pool. So what could possibly go wrong. Uh, and as Hannah knows, that was the beginning of, of the unraveling. Um, and it was quite a serious unraveling. And so I got laid off for the first time. I was in the wrong seat at the wrong time. Um, and then over the next four or five years, I ended up getting made redundant five times in six years. Uh, and then I got swindled twice. I got sued. I got swindled again. And it was all um, deeply hideous, to be honest. And all my money uh, was taken away. All my savings got to a day where um, I had to go and buy the family's weekly shop and because there wasn't any money that was in walmart and so all my credit cards are maxed out um and i was trying to work out how the hell i would do it and anyway i found some coins in the back of the seat uh in the car and in a briefcase up in the attic believe it or not and that was all i could cobble together which was five dollars 41 um and that was the only money i could physically get hold of um and i had to feed a family of five for a week and so i was trying to work out what the hell i do um do i buy a loaf of bread and some Nutella, which I could just about manage, um, or do I buy some cereal and some milk? And, you know, as anybody in the analog generation knows, you know, anybody, any parent knows, you know, we're hard, hardwired to, to feed your kids. And suddenly I was unable to feed my kids. And that was um, the first time 
there, you know, the wiring's really started to, you know, well, they completely unraveled. There had been a few instances before. I'd had a couple of uh, dark experiences. Um, suddenly, for some reason, I'd lost all my confidence. And, and they were very random and, and no particular reason. I didn't really know what they were. And then I'd had triggers to kind of get them back out again. And, and so, but this was the first time that everything had really kind of got really, really bad. And I literally couldn't turn on my computer. I couldn't operate in any way at all. Um, and so I just sit there and would stare at the window. Um, and so quite rightly, I was sent to the doctor and the doctor, uh, you know, listened to what I had to say and did a few sort of tests, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then at the end, the doctor said, OK, uh, here are two pieces of paper. Uh, and one was a prescription to the pharmacist. Uh, and the other said, you need to go down to uh, Norwalk Hospital in Connecticut. Um, and there is a team at ER waiting for you. Do not do anything else under any circumstances apart from get your drugs from the pharmacist. Uh, anyway, so I read both pieces of paper. Um, I threw them both in the bin. Um, and then I went back home and said, there's nothing wrong with me. So, which wasn't probably the smartest idea, but it was, you know, complete and utter denial. And so, anyway, a few days later, I went back uh, to, this time to the hospital. Uh, and then they turned to me and said, um, well, the psychiatrist basically said, having listened to my situation, he said, look, I'm afraid you're, you're sectioned for the foreseeable future. Uh, which was definitely the scariest thing I'd ever heard in my life. And I didn't really know what foreseeable future meant. I thought potentially this could be life. Um, but what I did realize was this wasn't a good place to go. And um, a very large guy walked in who was a linebacker, probably 400 pounds with a, a wheelchair and some um, handcuffs. And he said, sit down, sir. And it wasn't a suggestion. It was a straight instruction. So I sat down. And the next thing I know, I was taken into the psychiatric ward where everybody was extremely ill. Uh, and as far as I was concerned, there was nothing wrong with me. I was certainly not ill. Uh, I just maybe was a bit overstressed and struggling to deal with some quite high level of shit, to be honest. Excuse my French. Um, and so um, if you haven't ever seen a psychiatric ward, they're actually quite similar to a hospital or the one I went to. Although it took me a few days to realize why they didn't have any curtains, including in the shower. And also that the not only was the door extremely strong and you were never going to get out of that love of money, but also the windows were very strong because one of my fellow colleagues or patients decided to throw himself out of the window on the seventh floor and kind of bounce back in again. So it was all pretty grim. And then my um, brother and uncle came to do an intervention and I was absolutely sort of petrified, to be honest. I thought they were going to read me the riot act and say it was the worst, you know, dad in history and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and they took one look and went, you're just incredibly ill. And I'm like, no, there's nothing wrong with me. And they're like... You have to accept you're ill. <laughs> and um, so, but it was decided I'd come back to the UK to recover. Um, so I did. And on the way out, I was diagnosed with bipolar, um, which I didn't even know what it was, to be honest. And they explained it was you know, manic depression, a form of manic depression. Um, and then I got to the UK uh, and they also said, yeah, we agree. We think we've, you've got bipolar. Uh, and so you need to go on certain drugs. Um which I didn't want to do, but it was, wasn't an option. So I started going on these things and they made me a lot worse because I was in a kind of manic phase and they were making me speed up. And so all of that was a bit of an unraveling. Um, and then, um, unfortunately, within fairly quickly, uh, it became clear everything had really gone. My, you know, my marriage, my kids, my home, my career, the whole lot you know, had gone. And I was told that I couldn't do any kind of day job behind a desk, as it were. And so I had to try and get a job. Um, and so... I was like, well, where the hell do I, well, I'll just go to a bar, I'll go to a coffee shop and, you know, I'll just get a job, you know, as a um, temporary thing. But nobody would give me one. Um, I literally was, everybody said, no, nope, no, nope, 
you know, they took one look at my resume or whatever, and they went and just laughed and went, you know, this is ridiculous. You know, you could be doing my, my six bosses above me job. You can't come and do this. And so this dawned on me, that, you know, having been white, male and exceptionally privileged, I'd, I'd never heard any kind of or experienced any kind of barrier to employment in my entire life. And suddenly nobody would give me a job. Um, but I had to earn something. I had to get some sort of job. So I, fortunately, there was a frozen meat factory down the road. Um, so I went down to them and I said, do you have any jobs? Um, and they said, are you prepared to work at three in the morning and work at minus 55 degrees as the janitor? And I said, I'm your man. Um, and they said, great. So I did that. Um, so I was doing that for, I did that for eight months. Um, while my classmate was running the country, I was the assistant junior janitor. Uh, the irony was not lost. Um, so I kind of clawed my way back, uh, out of there, went back and I kind of got back into the drink, drinks industry at, you know, a few levels lower, but not a, not a bad opportunity. And I started rebuilding my life again. And I was like, okay, great. You know, we can start, we can start again, you know, bottom of the snakes and ladders, but why not? Um, and so I did that for a couple of years. Uh, everything was going great. I, you know, smashed all my targets and then, uh, then I was, I was made redundant, uh, one more time. Um, and a new guy came in and he's like, you know what, we can get a couple of 24 year olds to do this job. Uh, and we can save 15 grand in the process. Uh, and I'm going to look a hero. Uh, so that's what they did. Um, and so I was made redundant. It was the sixth time in seven years. Um, and I went and sat on a wall in a church and I wasn't that upset. The previous ones are really, really upset. This was like, okay, you know, I was totally calm, totally relaxed, but I was just trying to kind of, I was trying to process it really and trying to understand what was going on. And I sat in this churchyard um, and then it was very, very clear that um, I had somebody tap me on the shoulder. And I know this sounds a load of BS, but it did happen. And and it was it was like, mate, what are you what, what are you doing? You know, we don't want you to work in the drinks industry. You need to do something meaningful with your life. Um, you know, and, and, and so it became very clear that I needed to do something where I could actually give back and contribute rather than uh, effectively, you know, work in them alcoholic beverage business and so I was like okay that's what I'm going to do I'm going to I'm going to try and dedicate my life to trying to do that but I had no idea what uh, the only thing I knew and it's sort of the one thing was my north star based on the last seven or eight years was like I, I was going to be something to do with jobs it was going to be something to do with employment you know when I'd had a job life was bloody golden and when I wasn't didn't it was utterly shit and there was no gray whatsoever um and I thought you know this is not just me um, I'm sure there must be millions of other people. Well, obviously there are millions of other people who are unemployed, but also a million people, you know, with barriers to employment and, you know, and if we could just help them get a job, that would be great. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. You know, um, this is, this is really good. And I can see Sam and I are looking at each other, like so much of this is relatable in your story and, and, and clearly what you've done with it is amazing. So please keep going. Oh, uh, well, okay. Well, thank you. Um, okay. So. I decided that's what I was going to do. So I started um, trying to understand, you know, where employability fitted in the sort of bigger scheme of things. And, and I rang up a lot of charities, NGOs, um, and, and said, look, you know, what do you do? People who, and they all helped people. Uh, and they were absolutely brilliant at getting people back on their feet uh, and rehabilitation. Um, and so they might have done, you know, they may be working for veterans or ex-offenders or neurodiverse or um, refugees. It didn't really matter. And they all did the same thing. And I said, well, what's your end game? And they said, to get people job ready. Um, and I said, well, fantastic. What do you do after that? And then there was a stony silence. Um, and the answer was for 35 charities in a row, we don't. 
Um, and I'm like, well, it's great. You got them ready for a job. But last time I checked, you know, to get back into society, we all know the number one thing you need is a job. Uh, and there, there literally was nobody helping them do that. Everybody was focused around getting people ready for a job. Nobody was helping them get a job. Uh, and five years ago uh, in the UK and, and the same in the US, there was a massive talent shortage. Uh, and also there was just a, it was early stages in the whole diverse, you know, DNI journey, et cetera, et cetera, for most organizations. And they kind of realized they wanted to be more diverse. They needed to be more diverse. They frankly had no idea how the hell to be more diverse. And they certainly had no clue where to find diverse candidates. Um, and so I'm like, hold on a second. You've got all these people coming out from charities um, who uh, are diverse in one way or another. <laughs> they could be age diverse, could be socioeconomically diverse, or they could, you know, race, gender, pick your poison, um, and they need a job. And you've got all these employers wanting diverse people, and there's nothing in between. Uh, and so that was um, the, the kind of the genesis of Bridge of Hope, uh, which I founded five years and two weeks ago. Um, so Bridge of Hope Careers is what it's called. And the idea was to connect job-ready talent coming out of charities to inclusive employers. So quite simple. Um, we then expanded to be uh, not just charities, social enterprises, uh, you know, non-Russell group unis over here. So uh, obviously non-Ivy League, but, you know, a couple of levels below that in the U.S., um, but also boot camps or any other organization that's got people who need a job. And we're like, well, we can help you all. And it's free to you and it's free to your candidates. Uh, and so that's our kind of source. And we, we, we turned into a digital platform uh, over COVID. Uh, we were about to go extinct. And so we kind of had to reinvent ourselves very quickly digitally. Um, and we'd hope by now we might have, I don't know, 1,500, 2,000 people, uh, candidates from all these different pools. But we've got um, 79,500 or so in the UK. And whether they might be neurodiverse, veterans, ex-offenders, refugees, uh, and we just try and give them access to employers. And we work with mainly blue chip employers. And we have about 45 so far, all of whom are kind of household names over here, but many of them are uh, international companies like Cognizant and Direct Line and Body Shop, et cetera, et cetera. And so we just connect the dots. But we're trying to, you know, we want to be collaborating, help. Just, you know, this isn't all about Bridge of Hope. What we're doing is like uh, the movement is all around how do we make inclusive hiring the norm? Um, so that's probably the world's longest answer to your question, Hannah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I love every every single moment and thank you number 1 thank you for being vulnerable about your story but number 2 congratulations i mean that is absolutely incredible 79,000 candidates is phenomenal and i there's so much we could dive into here so let me let me take us down this pathway so first of all and this clearly resonated with me. I had um, Kate McGregor on the show a few months back, and she's from With You With Me, and she is oh, yes. neurodiverse. So she was, you know... Oh, do you know Kate? Well, we work with... We collaborate with With You With Me. They're wonderful. It's amazing. Yes. Okay, so Kate was, was on the show. We were talking about how it seems like, still to this day, the diversity conversation is really still centered on ethnicity, and yep. skin color, and no one even stops to consider all these other factors. So trust me, this will lead to a question, but you've already touched on diversity being, you know, all of these other things that we rarely consider, whether it's, you know, a past um, life, whether it was experiencing homelessness or a past life with um, being a psychiatric ward, or I, I just love how you talk about this, James, because you're so, you're so good with words, but the idea probably, of it's probably you know, all these different places and walks of life. <laughs> the loony bin. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think you said on our first call. 
So <laughs> this idea that people come from all these different backgrounds, there's so many different types of diversity. Well, here's something that stood out to me, and I, I really, really have been waiting to ask you this question. So we have, of course, in the past you know, six months experienced this incredible revolution in AI, right? With ChatGPT and Dolly and all of these different tools that have been coming out. And I was listening to a podcast with, uh, with Sam Altman, and he was talking about, you know, back in the past, we expected that AI or robots were going to take the, you know, the line workers' jobs first, right? You know, they were going to take the jobs of the people working at McDonald's or whatever, and then it would move up the line to maybe some more skilled manufacturing, and it might, it might then move up the line to, you know, some low-level sort of white-collar jobs, and then, you know, so on and so on. And the very last thing it would possibly touch is these creative jobs, right? Like the, the creative thinkers, the, the highest tier of, you know, musicians and artists and um, strategic thinking and all that. Well, of course, we look back and we're here, you know, in 2023 and ChatGPT is scoring in the top 1% on the LSAT and the top, like, it's just, it's coming for those creative jobs first. So here's my question. You know, you focus on this, this diverse work And in my mind, you know, sitting here as a Gen Zer who's also building a company in this idea of empowering young, creative, out of the box thinking voices. And in my head, it's absolutely a no brainer that you would want to, in a world of AI, employ people who think freaking differently, who think so vastly differently from what the norm might be, because heck, we've got ChatGPT now that I literally chat with three to four hours a day to help me brainstorm problems. So the part I don't have access to in my very, you know, normal Mm -hmm. brain is someone who thinks radically, absolutely obstinately differently than my Mm -hmm. own brain does based on my limited understanding of the prompts I can give a tool such as an, you know, AI bot. So here, here's my question from your perspective. Now working with 79,000 people who think differently, look differently, bring different skill sets to the table, or I know you call them invisible disabilities. Maybe they're like invisible superpowers. (laughs) What do you think is the role of those diverse thinkers in how employers should be looking at the future of talent in this incredibly shifting landscape where AI can do so much more than we ever anticipated it would in 2023? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, yeah, and you've, and I think you've, you've certainly helped prompt it very nicely. Um, I think it, it, this, this makes this talent pool even more absolutely strategically vital because if AI can do what typical talent can do, um, but much better and working 24-7 and various other things. Well, why do you need typical talent? Uh, and the research proves that actually a atypical talent or untapped talent, as we call them, work much harder, stay much longer, all that kind of stuff anyway. Um, but, um, you know, what AI can't do, as you say, well, you know, if you look at the neurodiversity bit, there's a couple of things. First of all, um, you know, managers need to start thinking about, and I think there's a, a general consensus everybody realizes you've got to, you know, trying to create a homogenous team of people who kind of think and look like you uh, is probably not the smartest strategy, uh, you know. Um, and so they need to start thinking of all different types of diversity, not just gender and ethnicity. Um, but when it comes to neurodiversity, um, and this is why, Samantha, you know, I think this is, you know, 
I think you'll once you kind of start to accept uh, it and acknowledge it and go through the whole sort of process there, actually, hey, being bipolar is bloody great. You know, um, if somebody said to me, well, you know, you said some really nice things there. Well, I would say, well, 75 percent of that's because I'm bipolar. I couldn't have done it if I was typical. Um, I couldn't have hit these crazy ideas and then made people do shit they never even dreamed of doing if I didn't, you know, if you don't think differently. Um, and so if you looked at the the whole neurodiverse um, spectrum, and I know this is very stereotypical, but, you know, autism, for example, the, the, only less than 20 percent have a job over here. And I think it's something roughly the same in America. And now when you have working from home, why the heck are you not proactively going after autistic people? <laughs> and without being stereotypical, a lot of them have an unbelievable attention to detail, focus, et cetera, et cetera, um, that, uh, you know, there will be huge amounts of jobs out there which would need that. And, um, and, they, um, and then they don't have any of the barriers of working in the office uh, to deal with. Um, so, you know, there's an incredible talent pool. Another incredible talent pool is dyslexic. Um, and so if you're dyslexic, you have spent your entire childhood dealing with a system that's designed to put you down and tell you you're stupid. Um, well, and if you've got through that, well, you must be bloody good. And if you uh, to do that, you have to be extremely creative. Um, and so the normal crap that comes in a day to day job is like a walk in the park because, oh, well, actually, that's not that difficult to me because I've dealt with having my entire education being told I'm an idiot and having to find ways to get around a system. Um, and you can kind of look at the whole way through. And um, you, you touched on the bipolar bit. Um, you know, obviously, I'm very passionate about that. Um, but we we have an ability to connect dots. You see opportunities and, big, you know, and network and all those sort of things that um, and I spend my entire life introducing people to them. I'm like, why are you introducing me to this person? I'm like, you'll know once you talk to each other. Um, and so, I mean, you know, the flip side is, and I don't know what it's like for you, Samantha, but, you know, I did do a, uh, one of my psychometrics I did, and, I, and they came back and said, on the continuum of one to 100, on detail, you are one, as in the worst we've ever come across. <laughs> I'm like, oh, thanks for that. <laughs> um, and they're like, but you, but you are one on innovation. You're, you're 99 on innovation. You're the best, with, you know, so because um, your brain thinks completely differently to everybody else. Um, and I was like, damn it, I should have been doing, you know, innovation all my life. But, you know, effectively, I do with what I, you know, in the work. So I think the neurodiverse bit is... So you would not have made it, a good prime minister, James? Sorry? <laughs> I would have been a spectacularly bad You would not one, have been a very good prime minister? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, don't get me on. Um, but then the other bit uh, of our talent pool, which is, again, completely unquantifiable, um, but AI, you know, doesn't matter what it does, it's never going to be able to achieve this, is around lived experience. Um, and so if you've had significant amount of crap in your life, um, and let's say you've been homeless or you've been in a psychiatric ward or you've, you know, had an addiction you had to get over or you've been, you know, oh, hey, um, you know, you're a mum returning to work uh, or a lot of, you know, we, we work with a ton of um, first in family graduates, you know, incredibly talented Gen Z come out, got all the skills they want, but just don't have the access. They don't have mummy and daddy that can put them in touch with somebody to give them a job. And then, you know, they hit a brick wall just through lack of access. Um, so we, we think and particularly around the lived experience and stuff as well. You just, you, you know, a machine can't create lived experience. You can't go and work and be empathetic and understand other people and, you know, and build teams from a point of view, point of real empathy. And as you've actually done it, been there, got there and got the T-shirt. So we think AI is great um, for, for what we're trying to do. But we do say to our partners, look, you're going to have to get rid of AI when it comes to your candidate journey. <laughs> Uh, because it will spit out 90% of our candidates. And we've got to go around that and provide you candidates 
to the, you know, on a plate, and then you look at them in a different way to you would typically because you know they may have a gap in their resume, they may have something, but they're guaranteed AI is not going to like them. This is so 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 good. So let's go deeper into this. And I just as you were talking, Sam and I were looking at each other. You're listing off so many themes that I see in Sam, like throughout our childhood. And so, I mean, Sam, you can speak for yourself, but is this encouraging? Yes, very much so. In a oh, weird great. Way. Yeah, yeah. It is so a bit weird. I'm just thinking, you know, the idea that you're talking about these, the benefits or superpowers of, mm. you know, dyslexia or autism or being bipolar is such a different way of looking at these. I mean, even just, so there were a couple things you listed out there, connecting dots. So the power, mm. superpower of being able to connect dots between people, yeah. bringing people together, and then being exceptionally good at innovation and ideas. Like I'm thinking about experiences with you, Sam, growing up, like where you have been at your absolute best. And it's always bringing people together is a huge mm. superpower, but yet, and, and James, I really want to get your perspective on this. So it seems like, and I just had this experience two weeks ago, um, we just hosted a student showcase where these 14 to 18 year olds sprinted for two weeks to learn a brand new skill or a digital skill using tenacious problem solving mindsets that enabled them to learn something literally brand new, such as how to build an app or you know, code a website or whatever in a very short period of time and then use it to help a local business solve a problem. And so we were testing this. We had a showcase, invited local employers, you know, had them come yeah, see this in phenomenal student work, right, that these kids had come mm -hmm. out with in a 14-day sprint. And here's what happened, which is fascinating to me. So the work spoke for itself, right? I mean, I know there were kids in, the, in that cohort, there were about 20 of them, who had, you know, mental health um, challenges, who maybe didn't have support systems, you know, all of these things, because they were coming from very different economic backgrounds. Um, some of their parents didn't even know what they were capable of or what they were doing. And so here's what ended up happening. At the showcase, the, the students who ended up landing real micro internships were all the ones who were neurotypical. They were all the ones who could come to the, to the showcase, communicate effectively, and you know connect the dots for the employer of this is what I did, here's how I helped the organization. And in my opinion, the ones who did the best projects, who clearly had just phenomenal brains, were the one, there was an autistic kid who could not communicate clearly. He didn't, he just didn't know how to, you know, verbalize mm. what, what he had done, but his project was phenomenal and he was overlooked. So maybe you can help me think through this. Um, what environments do you see folks who are, you know, d think differently? What environments do they tend to thrive in? And how do you set up that environment to ensure that someone's, you know, someone's going to have success in landing an opportunity or at least, you know, building their network when maybe the typical route doesn't work for them? Yeah, it's a good, uh, it's a good question. I mean, a couple of thoughts. I think, first of all, you kind of got to win the hearts and minds of the management organization, of the organization. 
Um, and so we uh, we do an awful lot of talks um, to try and typically at TA level, talent acquisition kind of lead level, etc. And uh, it's myself and my partner in Hope Chance. Um, so you heard my ridiculously privileged background. He had the opposite. So he is black, disabled, dyspraxic. Um, he was beaten up by his dad, age one, um, and he was um, in prison for 10 years and in mental hospital as well. So, But he's like one of the most talented guys you'll ever meet in your entire life. Uh, and we do talks together about our very different journeys and how it comes together and to, to help other people with barriers to employment. And it's um, quite powerful uh, talk. And then we get all these people saying we loved it. Um, and then they go off um, and they say, OK, great, I'm going to go and sell this into my insurance company or my you know, automobile company, what the hell it might be. Uh, and then they fall flat on their face uh, because somebody, you know, comes back and we say, well, I'm not going to have somebody who's been in prison, uh, end of story, move on or whatever. So what we do is say, look, OK, bring us in to talk to your management team. Um, so we offer gratis uh, webinars to any company they want um, to talk to them. And, uh, you know, this is it's quite a powerful talk and particularly chance. And invariably people turn to him and say, well, wow, you know, an unbelievable chance. You know, first of all, it's really nice you had a second chance. And he goes, well, what makes you think I had a first, uh, which makes them think about it. Um, and then secondly, they're like, well, we would hire you. And he goes, well, that's a lovely idea. But the reality is you wouldn't. And he goes, no, I would hire you if I could. Uh, um, and he goes, no, you wouldn't. I wouldn't have got past the algorithm. Uh, my CV looks rubbish. Uh, my, you know, I wouldn't even got to an interview. Uh, so your system is designed to make sure there's no way in a million years I could come to you. Um, so it's deliberately quite provocative to say you've got to rethink your whole system. Um, and so you know, we work with companies to, and help them try and make their candidate pathway fully inclusive, um, you know, from how do you make it attractive, you know, and, you know, the employer brand at one end to actually, you know, getting them through the process and hired and hopefully um, staying on as well. Um, and so, you know, trying to get that process right, nobody's got it right. We're trying to provide help or best practice, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, going back to the, uh, your, your little competition, which by the way, sounds absolutely brilliant. But if you said to me, how could you make it better? I think it would be all about um, having the conversation at the start around inclusive hiring and saying this is an inclusive hiring project and these are the rationale this is the, this is the social benefit of inclusive hiring boom 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 uh, and these are the uh, commercial benefits of inclusive hiring you know uh, they work significantly longer they're more loyal all of these different things etc so we want you to start opening your minds and thinking about okay where can we find talent we can't normally find it um, and get their mindset ready for that so then they don't default to the person who's the best presenter, because that's just the same as defaulting to the person who's the best at interviewing, you know, uh, and they could be utterly crap at the job within day one, you know, within one day, but they looked polished and they looked you in the eye and they answered the question you wanted to answer. Um, well, guess what? Interview, interviews are a disaster anyway, we, we'd advocate. So um, so there's that management of, expect, uh, you know, uh, expectation management we would kind of recommend. That's huge. And it, it does bring me back to some of the conversation with Kate, where we were talking about, you know, psychometrics and the ability to essentially look for so many qualities other than how someone shows up to an interview or whatever, because we know yep. now, like we, it's amazing to me how we know for a fact, based on years and years and years of research, that the interview experience, all those things are the lowest predictors of mm. employment success. And yet that's what all of us in our human nature still look for is 
a great interview performance or great communication that's not necessarily reflective of what that job entails mm-hmm. unless, you know, I don't know, you're supposed to be a <laughs> the person giving, you know, public press releases all the time or something, but it's not indicative of the success of most most jobs. Um and so, okay, tell take before we switch gears and and get into some questions I know Sam has for you and your journey, but um take us down your interviewing rant. I just have have to hear this. What what um take us down the rant about like what is what's wrong with the interview and then also are there ways or you know specific ways that you encourage employers to look at other things besides an interview or maybe even conduct the interview differently? Um yeah, sorry. <laughs> Was it that much of a rant last time? Um, when we had our initial chat, <laughs> I just if you if you allude to the interview rant, I just have to hear it because um, I no, I just I think it, I think it's a broken process it from <laughs> it's a broken process from start to finish. You know, uh, you know, there's, there's huge flaws right from the start on the sourcing and the job description, but then you know, um, a resume, you know, it literally is a train wreck if you ask me, um, and yet. It's like, this is the norm. This is how it is. But everybody knows it doesn't work. The emperor's got no clothes. So why the hell do we all continue to have resumes? Uh, and then once you like the look of their resume and it hasn't been spat out by your AI machine, which it probably does if you have any kind of lived experience whatsoever, um, you then go to an interrogate, I mean, an interview. Um, and, you know, that is a terrible, again, as you said, a terrible experience, particularly for people who may have any kind of anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, you know, we would say get rid of the whole thing. Um, but, you know, it's easy to say that. But, you know, we don't have a perfect answer and say, well, this is exactly how you should do it. Uh, we're seeing some great people do some things, we, you know, you mentioned with you, with me. They, I think they have a fantastic process where, you know, they get people to actually on the job working um, and practicing and demonstrating potential and aptitude to learn digital skills, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I love anything like that in that. But also, um, you know, why why do you have to get married why why don't why don't you go on a date what about um trying three three week you know uh work placements etc we would recommend that as a as a no-brainer kind of thing you like the look of them they like the look of you as the employer you're a bit worried because you know there's might be a bit of baggage and as a candidate you're a bit worried is is this is this employer going to be a nice inclusive place or are they just giving you baloney uh well Hey, go on a date. <laughs> Try it for three weeks. You're very quickly within a week. You're going to have a really good feel whether it's a fit on either side. Um, so, you know, um, and then any other kind of work placements, apprenticeship. I, you know, I want to actually softly, pause softly. you there, James, for a second. It looks like we've got a lag in our audio too. So hopefully, I'm not running over you. But um, the this idea of the the three week dates or test driving, I think, is absolutely brilliant. I don't know why more companies are not using this. I'm really curious, do you guys with Bridge of Hope, is that one of the mechanisms that you use to get com- companies comfortable with hiring folks with lived experience or different backgrounds? Like do they, when they're going through your platform, they're instantly applying for jobs or are they actively like looking for these test test drive opportunities? Well, yeah, I think the, it was the former to, to start with and, you know, um, it's uncharted territory. So we were like, well, we don't really want to give people short term opportunities because we, we don't want to give them a bit of hope and then take it away um and then it sort of becomes self-evident actually that's fundamentally flawed um and so we're now moving to doing as much temp stuff as we are perm as well and that temp is the perfect vehicle to really try try before you buy for both sides uh temp to perm etc cetera, etc cetera. so we're moving down that route um but 
you know, we're on a journey there. Uh, we have certainly haven't cracked the code, but it, it does strike me as that as as it doesn't have to be. You've got the job, or you haven't got the job, and the job, by the way, is potentially full time. You know, massive commitment for that organization. We know the cost to rehire if you get it wrong and all that kind of stuff. Why why have this kind of huge you know, high wire act for both parties when you could actually just say, well, let's just have a little walk along the road together and see how it goes. Um, so it just seems it's sort of it's something that's really kind of um, dawned on us fairly recently, to be honest. I can't tell you how much I love that idea. And I would love to hear how that progresses, too, because I'm sure the U.S. is different from the U.K. And there's all sorts of, you know, legal barriers to consider or policies and, you know, company policies and all that jazz. But mm. anyway, it's that's a fascinating topic to me. And we're exploring it on the student side. But just the idea of having these these test drive, not, you know, full commitments to something mm. idea, I think is the future of recruiting just based on how humans are shifting, you know, speaking of native digitals and the idea that no matter what your background is as a native digital, you're, you have been exposed to so many technologies that train your brain to think in really short um, stints. And then we assume you're going to commit to, you know, the, the, the traditional hiring pipeline still assumes you're going to be willing to commit to, you know, years and years at a company without recognizing how your brain test drives people's content all the time. And it test drives, you know, videos and you can click off something really, really quick. And our brains are just wired that way. So why not apply the same idea to careers? <laughs> It's it, it boggles my mind how that's not been considered, but you know, <laughs> I'm sure it has. <laughs> Sam, have you got any questions you'd like to ask? Uh, yeah, one of the things that I've been thinking about this entire conversation uh, thus far is how, when you you know you mentioned and talked about you know your whole journey and story with overcoming or um, this the the diagnosis and making it what was the term you used for it instead of bipolar disorder, bipolar a reorder, um, a reorder. I like that because, you know, I'm in kind of the stage, the, the beginning stage of, you know, obviously just getting the diagnosis and figuring out how to navigate, um, you know, the job, um, the hiring barriers, um, you know, that are in front of me of, you know, the resume, the process of getting hired and just the challenges that come with that. So how did you in that, I guess, um, lowest point you were in before you got help how did you mm. i guess overcome that or actually find the help i know you went to the hospital but like how did you actually get out of that um yeah point um good question i mean look it was all over the place is the honest answer <laughs> um because i i think because i was in kind of denial but then also I didn't know what the hell it was and I didn't really understand it and I didn't know you know but I also look I've been white male and very privileged so um, you know mental health happened to other people as far as I was concerned um it certainly didn't happen to me there was nothing wrong with me and I think that and this might help you as well you know there is still is nothing wrong with me I just have a mental health condition which may, makes me think slightly different there's nothing wrong with you <laughs> you haven't got anything wrong with you. you you know they haven't diagnosed you with the problem they've diagnosed you with you with a condition um you know so i think you know it took me a long while to kind of get here um i mean what a, one of the things that i did um interestingly enough when i was in the um frozen meat factory and you know it was quite an interesting place to work out and i was there were 5000 people i was the only brit who wasn't management there um and so 
And I was talking to well, my co-founder of Bridge of Hope, and I was telling it, and you know, and he said, "Well, what's it like?" And I told him about my shift that I did that morning. He goes, "This is absolutely nuts." And I'm like, "What do you mean?" He goes, "It's bonkers. Um, you should write this down. It'd be fascinating. Other people read." And I said, "Oh, don't be don't ridiculous. I can't write." And I, whatever. Anyway, so he's like, "Go on, write." Anyway, so I didn't really take any notice. And about a few days later, I was actually having lunch, uh, you know, which was a, a pot noodle. Um, you know, for twenty minute lunch break in in between, and I thought, okay, well maybe I'll write it down. So I uh, so I I started uh, writing down what it was like that shift that morning, um, and with the screaming Polish uh, psychopaths, and you couldn't answer back because you were immediately sacked if you did, and it was it was very very hardcore place. But I started writing down, and I had a, an extraordinary sort of feeling in my right arm as I wrote, and it was a very very strong sensation. Um, and it was kind of stuff sort of feeling like it was coming out of my arm and through my hand onto the pen. And I'm like, okay, this is really, really weird. Um, so and then I stopped writing and that feeling went, um, I went back to work. Um, anyway, the next day I did a bit more writing, feeling came back again. And so I wrote about that and every time I did the feeling came and then I thought, okay, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to write about what it's like to be in the psychiatric ward. Um, so, and that was one e one weekend and I pulled out my pen and paper and I started writing and my right arm went completely apoplectic. It was just, you know, extraordinary sensation. And the more I wrote, the more this feeling of extreme, uh, you know, something was being exercised from my body. And I know it sounds absolutely bonkers, but I don't have the imagination to dream this up is the honest answer. And I just wrote all about what it was like um, and the experience I had and the people I met in the psychiatric ward and all this sort of stuff. And, and basically the poison, a lot of the poison came out of my body by writing it down um, and uh, and I, I can't say this is going to happen to everybody or whatever but this is what happened to me uh, and that helped a huge amount so that was much better than any therapy or anything like that for me to be honest was writing um, and then then sharing uh, with people and people were very kind about what I wrote and uh, you know um, so so that was really really helpful uh, the other thing that I found incredibly helpful um, in what I do now is yeah, I had a bunch of crap happen to me, but I also had 40 years where I was one of the luckiest people in the entire universe. So, hey, um, and I meet day in, day out people who basically their life's been utterly crap from day one, you know, and um, and I worked with this amazing guy called Chance and his, his life was utterly crap from day one. Um, and now he's extraordinary and he's doing unbelievable things. Um, and so helping other people, supporting other people is best therapy of the lot. Um it stops you a feeling sorry for yourself and b you're actually trying to help them in some sort of small way uh helps you as well so it is a it's a it's a virtuous circle um and in fact i find it selfish because so I, any any anybody i ever talk to who's got bipolar i'm like i'll help you any way i can whatever because i always wanted to always happy to talk about it because i know if it can help just a tiny bit for you it's going to help me a lot well i was going to say the writing would be uh you said it was really helpful and um, yeah. kind of better than therapy. But I was going to say it's second to the uh, the jumping in the freezing cold water. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> he said that was the most helpful for you. Um, it's second. It's not as good I'll, as jumping consider, in the water. So, yeah, not quite as good as jumping into the freezing cold water and having <laughs> that just like, yeah. it's good for your, it's like a shock um, to jump yeah. in the freezing cold water and just like stabilizes a lot of your mood and yeah. what you're going through. Well, the other thing I would say, Samantha, uh, as a general thing, and I couldn't recommend it, would be exercise and nature. A combination, whatever exercise you want to do and where as and in nature where you're not with other people. Those two are just dynamite together. 
And you don't have to be bipolar for that. I think it helps everybody. Um, but take the mm. exercise, go walk, in, go walk in forests, go climb, do hiking, do whatever. Um, I, I can't go I, every holiday. I either go, I just go for 15 mile hikes every day and then jump in a river or start with jumping in a river, do a hike and then come back, you know, whatever. So um, I never go and sit, well, I can't afford to sit by, in a, uh, you know, in a, in, in a beach resort or something, but I wouldn't want to anyway. Now I'd like, no, but so highly recommend exercise in nature. 15 miles a day? Uh, on when I'm on holiday. When I'm on vacation. Wow. <laughs> That's impressive. That's when I'm relaxing. It's <laughs> so interesting well. to me. That's amazing. And what's so interesting to me is the more, this is just so cool, like the connections and the relatability here, because again, to your point, James, like you don't have to be bi bipolar to enjoy these, but there seems yeah. to be like this really fundamental connection to at least what I know being... Sam's sister, like, you're always at your happiest, Sam, when you're, like, the most active, like, you know, this <laughs> Sam's the type yeah. of person who's doing plies in the airport while waiting on the plane <laughs> and literally sweating to the point of sweating. And everyone's, you know, staring at her because she's got doing she's, my bar routine on the yeah. <laughs> on the chair while everyone's just sitting and staring at their phones. <laughs> the one who's doing splits in the airplane, who's like out and, you know, like that, that is your happy place. And I feel like when you're the least um, healthy version of yourself, it's when you're not so incredibly active that like, heck, jumping in lakes in the freezing cold or being out and dancing and like that's when you're your happiest and it for me like this whole today's conversation has been eye-opening because I feel like I watch you say I'm getting crammed into ideals that don't work for someone like you you know like cramming you into whether it's the box of you need to get a proper education or you need to continue your book learning or you need to, you know, you need to get a real desk job or you, like all these things that are not what God made you for, you know, like they're not, they're not what your innate superpowers are. And so James, I just like, this is a completely, completely personal, but like hearing you say that you've done something you're passionate about and you go jump in lakes in the freezing cold because that is the and, best way to like help your body oh go ahead yeah and and samantha don't be literal about it i think the key thing is that's what helps me the the one thing i would say if you want to be literal is nature and exercise you know go dance in the woods you know if, if dancing is your thing or do your exercise you know by a river whatever um but get out don't be in a gym um, don't be inside and don't be in a city if you can i mean well if you if you're in a city go to a a park or something but it's it's the birds it's the wildlife it's the nature itself the trees and you know and you start falling in love with all this stuff and you know and you're like oh my god i never really cared about trees before but look how amazing that tree is or you know and this look at those amazing ducks and how they you know the plumes on the back of them are just incredible you know you just start to appreciate i mean i think it's all this sort of uh wellnessness all that kind of stuff uh it's probably similar to that um but it's, it's just enjoy nature That's so beautiful. Yeah, Sam, do you have any other Well, it's just funny because I was actually sitting outside in nature when Hannah came outside about 30 minutes before we hopped on this podcast to ask me if I wanted to join. <laughs> I was literally <laughs> sitting outside in the grass petting a Great. bumblebee. <laughs> Maybe that's what we should we should have recorded outside. <laughs> and having black ants yeah. crawl all over me, petting a bumblebee, yeah. staring at the river. I do all, I do all my telephone calls outside walk, walking in the afternoon. 
And I find that's where I'm. You know, me too. Every time I I talk with a friend or um, if I'm catching up with someone I haven't seen in a long time, I I actually always it's the best environment for me to be walking and doing nothing else because I'm bad at multitasking too. So um, when I'm talking on the phone with someone, I have to like set aside time to go to a park or just uh, go outside and walk around and have just be alone and just be talking with the person I'm talking to. And um, definitely, yeah, in nature. For sure. So that's good to hear that from from you, James, from someone who has obviously walked this journey for much longer than I have and have. Oh uh, no, you don't walk it. You for, run it. <laughs> for oh, okay, or that, yeah, <laughs> or swim it, or swim it, yeah, <laughs> yeah, or swim it exactly. But it's really encouraging to just hear that. Yes, exactly. Just to hear that from you, because sometimes I think I'm crazy for just wanting to go outside, you know, barefoot and run around, or just go on a bike ride for an indefinite amount of miles, you know, without a plan or I'm very spontaneous. I'll just go out. And, um, earlier this week I was telling Hannah, I just packed up my bags and I left and I said, they were watching a movie, Hannah and her husband. And I said, bye guys. Good night. And I just left and I went and just, uh, found a place to camp. I made a bonfire. I just burned a bunch of crap that was in the, you know, that I could (laughs) find and, um, pick up in the yard. And I just, camp I just by myself in the middle of nowhere and just slept by the fire and um did not plan that did not prepare did not take really anything um that you know most people would think through of like oh I'm going camping let me like you know bring a mosquito net or like a you know anything (laughs) I just I'm just gonna go and sleep outside tonight (laughs) and I did that and um it felt amazing and um I just do spontaneous things like that that people kind of think I'm crazy for or they'll just say I'm crazy but it's like really just what I need you know so I do it and then I I think it sounds perfectly perfectly normal I don't know why anybody perfectly normal don't think anybody Uh, so I've got one other one Sam for you bearing in mind so if you have manic depression which it used to be called the manic bit um the way i help my brain because i have it pretty well all the time is the manic bit um and i don't have the depression bit that much um uh, unless things really (laughs) go pear-shaped um but what i actually do and i've factored into my day uh, my work day every day and weekends is i have um a little i have a power nap um so it's about 13 minutes i'll find somewhere quiet uh either you know, just lie on a sofa or um, I find a, you know, if I'm in an office, I'll find a quiet office, put um, something over my head, set the alarm. And that's what I do. And I will do it religiously every day, every day. And sometimes I might go to sleep. Sometimes I'm not, but my brain stops going completely mental um, for 13 minutes, refreshes itself, it reboots, and then I can do the afternoon. Um, And I couldn't do a whole day's work, I don't think now without doing that. Um, so I found that invaluable and people will go, what's wrong with you? Why are you going off and lying down and whatever? It's just like, let them, they can say what the hell they like. Um, but I found that incredibly helpful. <laughs> that <laughs> do you is do this? so ironic that you say that James, because I do the same thing. Did you say 13 minutes or 30 minutes? I couldn't quite no, hear one, you. three, one, one, three or one, four. You can't go, you don't want to go over 20 minutes. Otherwise you get into REM. That's great. That's I, I thought I heard you say 13, and that's just funny you say that because sometimes I – now, I have the opposite 
um, situation where sometimes I will, I'll just get really extremely tired to the point where I can't function. So, and I guess that that happens more when it's the manic depression, when it's the, what the hypomanic episodes or phases I'm in is when I'm, you know, go, go, go. And, you know, can't stop my, can't slow down my brain and what I'm thinking and what I'm processing. And, you know, I have to do this and this and this and this and this. And, but when I'm not um, in the hypomanic episodes is when I'm in the, the manic depression. And that's when I resort to sleep to escape reality. And, um, so actually this morning when Hannah, so I was in my room and I couldn't get out of bed this morning and I, I was trying to, I was trying to make myself, um, you know, like get my day started and I couldn't. And I actually had to text my sister and say, Hannah, can you please, you know, it was, a, it was vulnerable for me to say, Hey, I need help. Can you please, can you come in here for a second? And she came in my room. I don't know what I would, you know, do if I lived alone and w- without her, but she had to come in and just kind of talk me, um, you, you know, encourage me and help me to find something that I could hold on to or think about that would just help me get up and get the day started. And, um, so those naps, um, I should probably, that's a good idea to try the, the, the shorter naps. Cause when I nap mm-hmm. it typically is like two to four hours, <laughs> which is not yeah, healthy that, and that's a disaster. all the time, all the time. That's obviously. A disaster. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes that could help, you know, if I'm coming home from traveling and I'm jet lagged or whatever, but yeah. sometimes I will have, I will do two to four hour naps like every day or multiple times a week. And it's to the point where it's it's um disabling really um you know when I'm yeah those, because your 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 body thinks it's going to to sleep for the night um so that's why exactly but I always set an alarm and don't I mean you could do I don't know fifteen minutes twenty minutes and just don't go beyond that if you can um and even if you wake beyond up 20, then do your okay. other five minutes. um but uh, so uh, Sam I think you're being incredibly brave um and it's very brave to come on a podcast so soon after you've you've heard what you're doing um and i uh, but one you know talking about it you don't have to write it down but talking about it i think will help as well and talking about it to your friends so you're now you, you, you know this is now obviously will be published so uh, but you know most people won't know about it so i think you know don't be afraid to go and tell your friends and say this is the situation this is where i'm at you know and you know there's absolutely nothing to be ashamed of <laughs> it's just that they'll all go you know what we knew you were bipolar long ago. That's what all my friends did. Um, what you know, and what um, you know? What's your point? Um, um, so, um, but I think the more you don't don't bottle it, don't don't try and deny it. Just kind of accept it, embrace it. it well, it's not going to all happen at once, but I, I would strongly recommend you know make sure all your friends know because then they'll also be there to help you on your journey because you know it's really tough at the time moment. Yeah. It's really funny you say that actually about <laughs> telling some friends and then all of a sudden them being like, oh, you know, we knew you were bipolar a long time ago because I have been telling, you know, certain people. I haven't told a ton of people at this point because it's only been about a week and a half. But um, the people that I have told, you know, they'll kind of chuckle and go, you know, that that makes sense. You know, like so much of my life makes sense after receiving this diagnosis. And I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but my sister Hannah would agree, um, you know, just looking back and, you know, we were talking the other night and um, just kind of bringing up different scenarios of um, things that I would do when I was in hypomanic, because um, I'm bipolar too. I don't know. Um, there's I, I was actually something I was going to ask you if you're bipolar two or one, maybe you can touch on that um, here in a second, but I'm, I'm the light, I'm, I'm the bipolar light version. two, so I don't. 
the light, the, okay, same here. So I'm not, you know, I don't hallucinate. I don't hear voices. I don't, I don't see yeah. things that aren't in reality, um, which, you know, thank God, because that would be, I'm just thankful I'm not bipolar one. I feel like that would be a little bit, you know, obviously more to the extreme, but it's bipolar two. I feel like I'm on the most like extreme level of bipolar two. That's like bordering bipolar one. And of course this is a new diagnosis. So I still have a lot of research and whatnot um, to do and yeah. to figure out about myself. But going back to the conversation of just random things that I've done in the hypomanic phases over literally my entire life. And it's like, wow, my life makes sense now. Like I feel understood. I feel like almost like justified if that's a mm. a, a term that would make sense to use in this scenario yeah, of like, oh, wow. Okay, that makes sense why I just went on a whim and just, you know, bought some baby goats when I wanted some baby goats. Or, <laughs> you know, without knowing where, you know, this mm. actually happened. You know, there's so many different scenarios of just impulsive, you know, impulsive yeah. decisions that I made of, um, without even thinking of the consequences or the repercussions or any of that. Cause none of that's even, um, there, but that's those why I, moments I, I, of I, making I think decisions. I know it sounds like a cliche, but I think this is really good news for you. Uh, cause you now know what your condition is. And not only do you know, but your family know, your yes. friends know, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. And there's good sides to it. There's some not so good sides to it. How do you how do you leverage the good sides? How do you mitigate the downsides? Um, but everybody now knows. And when you go and buy a flock of bloody uh, goats or whatever, random goats <laughs> with nowhere to put them, um, people are not going to go, oh, my God, what is wrong with this girl? They go, well, that doesn't really surprise me. Not, you know, so, a flock um, of bloody goats. <laughs> Um, <laughs> which is literally what happened that's actually what happened I, I, I do think that's brilliant yeah um you might have to do you have to write down the 20 don't encourage her uh, <laughs> don't encourage her i just showed up at the house with two baby goats and just yeah. showed my hand and michael go home and they go oh we have we now Great. have two um living animals in the house and nowhere to put them <laughs> what do we do <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh, i i have to for the sake of your time james i we have to we have to stop here oh my gosh but i you could have you guys could have just done this yourself <laughs> this has been so refreshing i cannot tell you how refreshing this conversation has been is there any anything that you would leave us with James because I feel like we could talk for literal like probably five we could do a Joe Rogan episode we could go for like five <laughs> hours um but what is is there anything you would leave us um with about literally anything blimey uh well it's been sort of two two themes of the conversation um so one of which I think is the bipolar bit the other is the inclusive hiring bit the two are connected obviously um for me. So I think the, the bipolar bit, um, and maybe just for any of the, the viewers, you know, I, I just kind of would reiterate what I was just saying to Samantha, look, it, it's, it's not a big deal. Forget the stigma. That's 10, 15 years ago. It's a condition. It's got a huge amount of things going in its favor. Also some challenges around it. Likewise, most other mental health conditions. So, um, you know, I'd embrace it, Samantha. I'm here to talk anytime or help you. And I'm sure you're other, there are lots of other friends, or I'm sure you will find other people now effectively you were telling people you're bipolar there'll be other people coming out well actually now you mention it so am i um and i didn't know i but i've got a bunch of friends who are bipolar all of whom told me once i'd kind of 
explained that I was bipolar. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm very passionate about that, that area. Um, and I do see it as a, you know, a, a super strength, um, but also one you have to be careful with. Um, and then the inclusive hiring bit, um, you know, I love the conversation. Um, I think we're just literally starting the journey, to be honest. Um, and as is every major organization trying to do that, they're just different stages of the first mile or so of a marathon. Um, and, um, you know, if there are any employers out there who are really interested in this, unfortunately, we're just UK at the moment, but coming over to the US soon. Um, but we're really just trying to get the message over about, look, this is an amazing opportunity. Uh, this is a talent pool that you should be looking at, not because you feel charitable or because it was probably the right thing to do, because they're bloody amazing. <laughs> um, and guess what? There's a, a massive talent shortage, even despite a really crap uh, economy at the moment. Um, so the two, for me, you know, gel together. My personal passion about inclusive hiring and, and my personal, personal condition, as with Samantha, uh, having bipolar. Um, so I don't know, that wasn't that wasn't terribly lucid, <laughs> but, but everything also well said together. Very well said. <laughs> um, but thank you well, both so you much. You are welcome uh, back Samantha, I wanted to, Yeah. Oh, that's very very kind, Samantha. Thank you for you sharing what you've got as well. And please, I, I mean it from a helping point of view. Uh, and Hannah, one phenomenal facilitating. So, hey, thank, thanks uh, for being on. That. No, no problem. That we will totally keep that here in the show too. Where are we done? <laughs> <laughs> You're amazing. I love how casual this has been. Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you're looking to connect and talk more about attracting and retaining Native Digitals, you can reach me at hannahgwilliams.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Yeah.